Welcome to season six of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. This is where the truth is told in craft beer, quite possibly the only place. My job is to interview the breweries, distributors, and retailers on the front lines of craft beer all over the world. Not the ones that pretend they're successful while bleeding cash flow and profitability every month, but the honest ones that share the truth of their pain, their struggles, and their loss. With your help, we'll make this industry better by admitting when it's not, by pointing out the impossibility of the business model and the headwinds of the marketplace in every country all over the world. This season will be the most diverse one yet. We'll go back in time, across ocean and deeper into what we can do to prevent beer business disaster. So thank you for joining me on my quest to uncover how not to start a damn brewery. Working with a distributor was probably the most painful, most difficult part of actually running the brewery. You're barely making anything, giving them the product. They're making the money, not us. Fractal Brewing Project opened late in 2019 and closed sometime 2023 in Huntsville, Alabama. Maybe it isn't a song as old as time, but the story is one we hear a lot. So there's this money guy who loves beer. He befriends a brewer in a homebrew club and gives that brewer a percentage of his new brewery. The money guy, with absolutely no craft beer experience whatsoever, overbuilds his vanity project and creates a truly beautiful space with all the toys, most of the bells, and even some of the fancy whistles. But without the proper guards in place, the business itself flies completely off the rails and hurdles towards disaster after only a few years. Our interview with Bradley Robo Robson covers a lot of ground, from the struggles of craft beer in Huntsville specifically and Alabama overall, to how to parry a punch from one of your bartenders. So sit back, listen in, and take what you can from the story of Robo Robinson and the Fractal Brewing Project. All right, before I can do my normal welcome and introduction, I, I have, I don't know what to call you. Is it, is it Bradley? Do I call you Robo or do I call you Mr. Robinson? And, and I'm cool with any of them. They call me Robo. That's what everybody calls me. That's what I was going to do, but I didn't want to be that, like, I don't know you yeah, yet. Yeah, everybody calls you Robo. All right. Well, in that case, Robo, thank you for welcome and welcome to the show. Uh, we have a lot to go over today about uh, your career, your experience, ups and obviously downs, which is a lot of what we cover. And I know that can be emotional, and I absolutely really appreciate you being here today. So thank you very much. You want to introduce your friend? You brought you brought backup with you today. I like it. <laughs> a good buddy that's been around for a while has kind of been with me for the past couple of years since COVID, seeing how the brewery's kind of unrolled, seeing some things I've been doing, and one of my biggest supporters, uh, Ben Ackerman. How's it going? Ben, welcome to the show. I'm looking forward to uh, getting your hot take on some of what's going on over there in the Huntsville area. So I have no personal relations or liability, so I can just tell somebody if they suck. I, I tell him you, all the time. I expect you to tell me if Robo's lying to me, too, then. Now you're going to be my litmus test for the day. Well, so before we get too much into the business piece, tell me a little bit like how you got started. Why? You know, how did you get to the point that you one day started baking beer? Who were you before that? Oh, shit, man. So... Oh, I was in the Marine Corps, Marine Corps for about five years. I was up in North Carolina, and at the time, North Carolina was the big blooming flower of craft beer. That's where craft beer was being known for on the East Coast, and there were beer fests left and right every weekend. You'd trip over it. All these new bottle shops and bars and everything opening up up there, and they were they were primarily opening up around military towns because they were trying to advertise and get their beer out there in front of the military crowd because they you know they would go out and they would drink it. So I got introduced to a place called Beer Army, Dustin Kane store, really solid guy. He's a Marine. Uh, he had a bottle shop up there. I called the Beer Army Outpost. It was about a 20 minute ride for me from base and we'd go out there all the time and just walking into this place, being a young 21, 22 year old kid at the time and just not really knowing a lot about beer. And I'm walking in and 
there's just endless options and everything on the shelves. I didn't even know what I was looking at half the time. I just go up to the bar. There are like 10 taps at the time, which was an outstanding number back in the day if you had 10 taps, you know, and just trying anything and everything they had on tap. And just go, all right, this is cool. This is good. All right. Experimented with a lot. I learned that you could actually make this yourself. So me and a couple of buddies got a storage unit off base. And uh, we would go store our fermentation in the storage unit since we couldn't do it on base in the barracks or anything like that. We were limited to alcohol. And, of course, if we got caught producing alcohol in our barracks, that was definitely a hell no and a slap on the hand. So, so you fast forward a little bit. I'm starting to get out. I met my now wife. She was uh, up there at ECU getting her Ph.D. in biochemistry. She let me move in with her in a one-bedroom apartment. I had this home brewing supplies. And I had a little rack in there, and I would store my home brewing supplies in our one-bedroom apartment and <laughs> go and brew out on the back porch on the weekends. Met a lot of the homebrewers and the older guys up there that had been brewing since the 70s, just old hats, that experience. They introduced me to a lot more beer styles, the process of brewing. Taught me how to not just enjoy drinking it, but to make it to where I can also enjoy it, what I've made. While I was up there, 2015, 2016... There was a new brewery opening up called Uptown Brewing Company in Greenville, North Carolina. I was jumping around job to job at the time. It just got out of the core. I read the article saying that the head brewer and one of the guys opening was from Alabama. So I was like, oh, cool. There's a little tie and a connection right there. I sent him a message and said, hey, man, I'm, I'm from Alabama and I love home brewing. You know, I'm, I'm a hard worker. I'm strong. I can put up with a lot of bullshit. Let me in. I got in with him while I was going to college and I'd go over to the investor's house and help them brew on their, um, it was a Sabo set, five gallon, all that stuff. Spent all summer over there when I wasn't in class or something like that, brewing with them, dumping the stuff out, cleaning, learning more. And then the time came where they started breaking ground on the brewery itself with equipment. So I got to go up there and help them stand up equipment, learn how to connect all the equipment, learn what the equipment really was. Stayed there for about five months after they opened, brewed with them. And there was a job opportunity back in my hometown here in Huntsville, Alabama at uh, Rocket Republic Brewing. So I sent them an email. We chatted, flew down here two different times to talk to them, and I got the job. So I looked down here. My wife was just about to finish her PhD a couple months. So I moved down ahead of her, got a house down here, started working there for six months or so, and went to a store called Wish You Were Beer. It was the first craft beer store and bar in Huntsville area. It was like the OG, the, the grandfather of it. The sign is actually behind us. Yeah. Oh, really? This is actually the original sign from the Bob shop. Yeah. Yeah. It's passed over to another store now. This and a tribute to them because they actually closed down. But uh, they did homebrew supplies and stuff. So I went in, bartended for them, taught homebrew classes, and managed the homebrew shop for them and was able to grow the homebrew shop significantly from like one row of goods to over half the store was homebrew supplies. Got good relationships with the homebrewers. They knew that I'd been brewing a couple other breweries. One of the owners of another brewery called Below the Radar, it's a brew pub. He came up, he talked to me. He's like, I've had your beers over at Rocket Republic and stuff, and you have a good following. Why don't you come over here to us? So, you got okay, recruited cool. away. I, I, I miss it, you know, so... It was like another five-month tour at a place and went over here to this brew pub and got over there. They had 32 taps and only two of them were their own beer. So it was mind-blowing to me to see how this was going on. And the brewery was just, it was a mess. It was disgusting. It was awful. And it was only like three years old. Everything was falling apart. The brewer that was in there just didn't give a shit and just let the place go to hell and kept two beers on tap. And I sat down with the owners and I'm like, I'll come in here, I'll do this, but it's going to take a lot of work, you know, and y'all are going to have to invest a little bit of money into this place to get it up to par where it needs to be. Like, we're not even oxygenating the work or anything like that. It was it was nuts. I don't know how he was cleaning the tanks because didn't have the proper chemicals. <laughs> it was, yeah, was batshit crazy, man. But got in there, 
in the first 60 days, I had them up to 28 taps, just got them reloaded. And then they saw the full potential of the place and what it could be. And I'm like, this is how it should be. You should never have more of outside beer than your own in your own place. You know, that's, that's, that's embarrassing. You know, and they, they understood and they agreed, you know, and all the owners got behind me, all 20 of them got behind me, supported me. And then it started turning into some of the owners didn't really care for craft beer. They wanted to be more of a steakhouse and they would go in and drink Ultra or Miller Lite or something like that and raise their noses up to some of the stuff I was brewing. And I'm like, this is what you bought into. This is what you wanted to be a part of. You know, I mean, I'm sorry. Nobody wants to come into a brew pub and be like, oh, I can get a $25 steak. No, they want to go in there and want to get a $10 burger, some fries and a good beer. Yeah, that's a strange business model. But my understanding, and obviously correct me, what, what year is this like, approximately? This was 2017, 2018. Yeah. So you guys had no breweries in Huntsville until like 04, right? Or something like that? 2004 was when Old Town Brewing yeah. Company came into town. Yeah. So they were the first ones here, and they were awful. <laughs> I mean, they were terrible. They were our downtown here in Huntsville, and the building actually caught on fire, burned down. And one of the owners built this building off of Lehman Ferry, and they went there, and they lasted like maybe two or three years, something like that, till they all realized that, hey, the shit we're brewing does suck. And all their friends quit convincing them that it was good and drinkable. So straight to ale went in and took over all the equipment, took over the facility. They moved up from another smaller location. And that's where they really blossomed and grew up. They went from their uh, their teenage years to their adulthood in that building. I really can't stand that name, Straight to Ale. It bugs me. And I wanted to hate them. And then I looked and they make... A beer called Stout at the Devil and one called Pompatus of Love. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, fine, fuck you. I'll, I'll give you credit. Yeah, like a lot of their uh, their logo, I mean, is with the devil horns yeah. and everything. Yeah. They they lean into a mixture between like you know the demonic slash satanic theme and then also anything space related. So they have a lot of stuff because we're in you know Rocket City USA. They have a lot of stuff that is like space themed to go along with it. Talk about the history of the the breweries and stuff. Alabama didn't get into craft brewing until when was when was the free the hops movement so there was a brewery a, a brew pub in birmingham it was called like the birmingham brew pub or something like that one of the best brewers in Huntsville at this very moment was actually one of their first brewers <laughs> and he's been brewing now 35 years professionally he's brewed at bells and deschutes and a few other places solid person makes some solid beer um, a great great asset for straight tail Straight Dale moved on, building sat vacant, and then we went in there and like, shit, it's already got the footprint of a brewery. People already know this place to be a brewery. It, it worked. It's got the drains. It's got everything we need. So it was easy for us just to acquire that building and some land there with it and go in, bust up some of the old tile floor and clean the place up, get a nice architect to come in and, and reshape the place for us. Because it wasn't originally set up to be a tap room, because at the time, tap rooms weren't legal. So it was a production brewery. What we had as the front foyer area, the fractal, was originally a garage for two cars with garage doors on it. And it was just, it was tacky. It was weird shit. They had a kitchen in there and then they had just production space and they had the bottling room like enclosed. Well, I saw the pictures and, online, so you did a good job of fixing it from that, because it looks cool now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Our, our architect was, she was fantastic. Julie was her name. She was, she was wonderful. She was great to work with and, uh, I mean, she really ran away with the idea of what we wanted it to be. Uh, she probably went a little too far with it, which is something we'll get into later on. But, yeah, we took down a lot of the walls. I mean, the original roof, a lot of new plumbing, original walls, tore down every interior wall and put up all new walls, new bathrooms, new everything. Because, I mean, the bathrooms, they had in there were like one toilet hmm. because it just it wasn't set up to be a tap room, you know? It was an entertainment thing kind of for the owners. So 
little bit of workforce, but going back to the below the radar thing. So now we're back getting that timeline filled in a little bit more. So 2018, when I was actually approached by the owner, primary owner of Fractal, I knew his brother. I homebrewed with his brother and we had mutual friends that would drink with me and knew my brewing and actually came to some of my homebrew classes and learned things from me. The owner actually did too. Uh, we realized that once we saw each other face to face and met, like, oh yeah, you've been a couple of my classes. Um, so we sat down, started developing a business plan, putting some things together. I'm still over at Below the Radar, but I'm fizzing off a little bit because I, I realized how much I had grown Below the Radar and what I've done for him in just that year I was there. One of the owners, Steve Velo, was just an awesome guy. He was the one that was really motivated and behind me to make it a better brewery for him. So he would talk to me all the time, encourage me. He actually paid for me to go to Siebel out of his own pocket. So I got that. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. He cared. He, he gave a shit, which was awesome. And it was probably the first time that I actually worked at a brewery where I actually felt like somebody gave a shit. <laughs> you know, it's not like they're not just sitting there. It's like, where's the money? You know, what's, what is, or I don't like this beer. Like, motherfucker, you're not, I don't care if you like it or not. It's what the customer's like, you know? Unfortunately, it might be the last time also, but we'll see. <laughs> yes. So I brought in some help and I trained up my replacements. I was running the place by myself. It took three to replace me, uh, which was crazy, but they were all for it. And I mean, they only had a 10 barrel system doing seven barrel tanks. Hmm. They weren't distributing a whole lot. When I got there, distribution for them was non-existent. Um, and I got them up a little bit, got them out there a little bit. Uh, just being a brew pub that a lot of people were after brew pubs beer because they weren't sure how much they could get of it. You know, we couldn't do cans, we couldn't do bottles. Plus the place that had a bad reputation of infected beers. And like I said, the place was trashed when I got there. So it's all believable. Got the reputation turned around, worked at the chef lot, did a lot of good things for Blood Radar. Unfortunately, they closed a year ago. They had 10 different owners and each owner wanted a different thing. And so at that point, they just said, we're not going to agree. So we're just going to sell it off. Well, that's frustrating, too, because you have 10 owners and you're only getting 10% of the minuscule amount of profit, but you're never going to make any yeah. money. And 10, and 10 owners, none of them brewers and none of them craft beer guys, like you said. They all had different things of, like, wanting it a brunch spot, a steak spot, a cafe. Team was the only one that cared about it. So at this point, you decided to, well, you and your the partner decided you're going to open up, open up Fractal, open your place. What was the reason for it to exist? So take the overall Huntsville market your expertise in it, and why did you feel that, A, you needed another brewery, but B, that you needed a brewery only that your creativity and expertise could create? Oh, man, so ever since I started homebrewing, like, it was always a dream for me to open up a brewery one day. You know, like, every homebrewer, every homebrewer has that, I don't care who you are, in the back of your head, you want to open up a brewery. You think it's cool. You want to brew and show all your friends and show everybody how good you are, right, even if you suck. <laughs> I guess when I look back at it, knowing what I had brewed at, the previous breweries, knowing the reputation of the guy, especially when I was at Below the Radar, because that's when I started getting a lot more recognition because I was the head brewer. I was the guy in charge. So everybody noted my name more. We had a sour festival here, and this is what really highlighted a lot of things for Below the Radar. And I teamed up with the bottle shop and bar downtown, OTBX, Old Town Beer Exchange, that was hosting this and setting it up. And the brew pub was almost right across the street from them. So they'd come over all the time about, hey, man, can you brew some sours? You know, can you do some, like, dragon fruit, passion fruit sours? Can you do all this stuff? It's like, sure, let's do it. You know, so I ended up brewing a passion fruit, dragon fruit sour that we called Passion of the Dragon. We did Tangelo sour that we called uh, the Wu Tangelo sour uh, for <laughs> Wu-Tang. I mean, we, we made this shit fun. We did, like, six, seven different sours and put them out there in front of everybody. And you walk into this place, and there's 40 sours on tap, but everybody's like, blow the radar. You know, the people that were... 
that knew knew, and they were going to go for it. They were going to try it. And then everybody outside of town was like, I've never had them try it. And my sours actually ended up being the first ones to kick. So that got me a lot of attention then. Uh, even from the previous breweries I'd worked at, they all came up to me and talked to me, uh, Rocket Republic, and they were like, hey, man, this sour is really good. How'd you do it? And I was like, okay, cool. You know, it's kind of a hat tip to me from that head brew that I had worked for before. So uh-huh. they ended up started developing some sours the same way I was doing mine. I was able to help them. I wanted to get more of my beer in front of people. Like, I, I, I love craft. I had gone to school for it. I had read books on it. I had educated myself so much on it, you know, and just that's what I wanted to do. And I was like, I'm going to do this until I die. You know, it's working out for me. I'm going to keep charging ahead. I'm going to lean into this and go as far as I can with it. Larry was finishing up. He had worked for a company that sold to a bigger company, and he had some ownership in it. So he got a little bit of money, was waiting to get out of that job that he had obligations to. And once his contract was up, he's like, I want to open up my own business. I've always had to work for or with other people. I want to work for myself and do something for myself and contribute to Huntsville because he was a craft beer guy, too. He didn't necessarily care and what the always, business was. He just wanted to do something. Was that kind of the idea? Uh, I'm not going to say he just wanted to do something. I'm pretty sure he was exploring all kinds of ideas. But I think the craft beer and the brewery side of it was the primary goal of what he was wanting to do. So we went over. We looked at this building that Straightdale was in. And he had gone over there a lot. He used to work out at the gym right across the street from it. So he knew how iconic that building was. And was like, man, this is just too good of an opportunity. You know, I, I got a brewer got a building to make this happen. So we both convinced each other. It was a great idea. It took a lot more convincing for me than him. I'm thankful that he did go out there and take the risk on me and uh, and do all that. It was a fun exercise, yeah. to say the least. So how did you guys come up okay. with the business model and business plan? Was that more since he brought the capital to his department or did you guys? Yeah, he was, he, was, he was the capital. He was the man. I was just the sweat and the experience I could bring everything together and I got to decide on the equipment. I got to help work with the architect to design how I wanted the production area to be. Um, she was all tap room and I was like, I get this though, you know, she still got to pick some colors from a fucking brew floor. I'm still irritated about to this day because I had to clean it. It's a pain in the ass when you got like a real light gray brew floor. It's yeah. Pain in the Can't ass. see the stains and stuff. Yeah. Oh, God, man. I was like, you just need like a black floor, dark gray. And it's like, she got the lightest gray you could. It's like any little mark, it showed yeah, up. Yeah, man, anything. Man. Yeah, forklift drive over. It's like, you see like mud or something. I said, motherfucker, man. Anyways. Did he end up renting the building or was he able to buy it? He bought it. Okay. Oh, yeah. He bought the land, the building, and everything. Just because that area was blowing up. All Huntsville is. I think he realized it would just have been a smart investment anyways. Which is, you know, yeah. Property value is going to go up. Yeah. And we got a brand new soccer stadium directly across the street from us. Just it just opened up, and it's a pro league soccer. And they've got a a minor league hockey team that's pretty pretty decent as well. The thing about in Huntsville as well is that property values have skyrocketed over the last three years as the city has become more desirable. And so, you know, actually, probably I don't know if maybe he for, foresaw this or not, but just about every business that I know of that's not like, you know, basically in a prime location, in a big desirable spot is getting forced out of their leases because the property owners are just jacking rent up left and right. So probably one of the saving graces was... There's some good foresight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It seems to be a very recurring theme on a lot of interviews that I have is that the guys who own their building walk away either equal or maybe making a bit. And then the ones who didn't, unfortunately... Um, and end up just, there's no way. I mean, you just get hammered. So 
Uh, quick question, Ben. Were you in town when they opened or did you come later? I wasn't in town when they opened, but I was in town when they started. Okay. So it, there's kind of a there's kind of a duality of things there because they opened right September 13th, 2019. And then you hit right in the middle of the Huntsville is exactly opposite of every other like town you would think of with sports to where you think that, you know, oh, it's the game is on, you know, college. I mean, this is right in the heart of SEC, you know, everything else you would think that, oh, well, everybody's going to go out. No, everybody freaking stays home for for games. It's just it's something that's different about Huntsville or Alabama in particular. And so they opened up right as they opened up right at right as football right as football was starting. So lowest time of the year for bars and stuff here in Huntsville. And then 2020 COVID hits. Mm-hmm. And so that was when I, I retired out of the Air Force in February of 2020 and moved up here to Huntsville to take a job. And so that was kind of how. I got introduced, like my first time here in Huntsville was in the middle of COVID. So a lot of my introduction to food and beer around here was to go orders and picking things up. But I didn't actually meet Brad until a little bit later, just because of where the brewery was. Huntsville is kind of like, we are the most centralized brewery, we're the most centralized brewery in all of Huntsville. Yeah, but it was so out of the fucking way for people yeah. because we were off the parkway. And if you live in South Huntsville, you're taking the parkway up to North Huntsville, and in North Huntsville, you're taking the parkway South Huntsville. And just to get off that little exit was a pain in the ass. Yeah, yeah, it's the it's the most centralized, but it's not it's not the most desired part of Huntsville. Mm-hmm. And so that's you know the Madison and maybe a little bit of the downtown Huntsville area. And so that kind of adds to the complexity of the the brewery being there, is that you know it's. It's not necessarily zoned for it, but then again, the places where you can be zoned for it, they don't allow businesses that manufacture alcohol to be in there because it's, you know, it's Alabama, number one. Because of God. But then also, you can't have, if you're a brewery, you can't have a tap room that's not attached to your brewery without ordering your own beer through a distributor. Mm. Yeah. So you can have like in these in these high populous areas, these very high traffic where most of the restaurants, most of the you know, businesses and stuff are where the desirable parts in Huntsville, you can have a tap room. But in order to operate that tap room as a brewery, you have to sell your beer to a distributor and then buy your beer back from the distributor, then sell it in tap on the, in the tap room. All the breweries around here do some level of brewing attached to their tap room because otherwise it's not financially viable, which is kind of one of the downfalls of doing brewing in Alabama. I could talk for an hour on how Alabama ABC chokes out every single bit of the beer and liquor market in Alabama, but this we yeah. have a board that's elected by your distributors. It's going to be in favor of your distributors. We don't have that, yeah. but we just have one that's uh, financed by the distributors. The Texas Beer Wholesalers Commit organization is the biggest one. Same thing. Yeah, <laughs> and actually here. They, I don't remember exactly the timelines, but it was like 13, I think, they changed the law where a brew pub could distribute, uh, but there were still some issues and like the self-distribution piece. And then once you got above self-distribution, you had to do the same thing. And it was it was well known that at that point, it was just called a dock tax is what we all called it because nobody actually sold it to the distributor and bought it back. They just paid them whatever the value was and then they never fucking left their brewery. It was the stupidest thing, but it's, it would be more of a pain in the ass that way. Why would you do that? It's only been... 15, maybe 20 years since 
Alabama actually allowed a beer over 5% to actually be sold. Well, it's just probably because no yeah, one was you drinking had it. before that in Alabama. I think it was just a bunch of very God-fearing <laughs> Christian people that just knew well, that. Well, you're God-fearing sober. <laughs> well, you had, you had a bunch of places to where, like, I was stationed out in Montgomery for twice in my Air Force career. But I was down there in, like, 06, 07, and you couldn't buy a beer or anything on Sunday. And then there was like this big modern movement to where you could walk into like they allowed places like Applebee's and Chili's to sell a beer as long as you were consuming it on premise. <laughs> but that was it. And there's still there's still count- good girl. Yeah, there's still counties in this state that you can't sell alcohol to. Matter of fact, we're our motorcycle group, the Combat Vets Motorcycle Association. We're going on a, a poker run this weekend that starts at a Piggly Wiggly and ends at the Harley dealership. But all the stops are like at restaurants and stuff because there's no bars. There's no bars in the entire county. So there's nowhere to buy liquor, nowhere to buy alcohol. So we were the last state to legalize home brewing. I mean, we just got self-distribution a year ago. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. We can we could only sell up to a quarter barrel per person per day. Huh. That's Which it. is nothing. That's that's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. 2017 it was when it became legal that you could actually sell beer to go out of your tap room. So cans to go or crowlers or whatever. At least you guys finally figured it out. All right. Well, so let's uh, let's take a quick break. I want to hear a little bit about the equipment that you selected, kind of how the move-in went, and then we'll talk about, obviously, COVID. We'll talk about post-COVID, and then talk about what happened. But let's take a quick break. I'm going to grab a beer, and we'll be right back. Yeah. Need a refresh. the late 90s, when you wanted to know what year Napoleon invaded Russia, you'd have to either A, pay attention in class, B, know somebody who knew, or C, look it up in an encyclopedia. Thankfully, my kids don't have to look in 30 volumes of Britannica to find answers anymore, and neither should you. When you're fermenting beer in a closed tank, you can either use the hydrometer that was invented in 1790, go check it up on Google, or AccuBrew. And AccuBrew is a real-time web-based measurement system that gives you access to your beer's fermentation metrics from literally anywhere in the world. It measures current gravity, temperature, and even clarity, and compares them to the standard you set for the recipe your team is brewing. If something's off, you'll get a notification immediately. Go to AccuBrew.io, enter Dan Brewery at checkout for 10% off your sensor, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. All right, well, welcome back. So, like I said, I want to hear a little bit about sort of the logistics of starting up. So, my understanding, about a 5,000-square-foot building, uh, you had like a thousand foot event space, which is a little unique for a brewery, not unheard of, but unique. Like what was the idea behind the event space? So it was actually a 10,000 square foot building. Okay. Yeah, we had 5,000 square feet outside patio that used to be a loading dock. And we heard from Straightdale when they moved out, like, hey, man, it's just a, it's a pond. It just holds water. It didn't drain. And we saw it. First time we went over and we like toured it. We looked at it. It's like, yeah, there's all kinds of floating shit and probably a body at the bottom of it. So we're like, okay, got to do something about this. Plus we wanted outdoor space. If we put it on the other side of the building, it's going to face the sun in the evening. So we put it on the east side. That way that you'd have the shade in the evening, in the afternoon when a lot of people are out there. We did have that thousand square foot event space, which was the old original kitchen when it was Old Town and Straight to Ale. Uh, it was like this weird catty cornered kitchen thing. Cabinets and stuff that looked like they were from the 70s. So we ripped all that out, actually squared the room off, made this event room. We wanted a space where people could go for offsite meetings and stuff. So my investor came from a lot of corporate side stuff, defense. So he knew the importance of being able to capture that market 
get them to come in and drink a beer or something like that and, and rent that event space out to them. Two big barn doors on it. It had its own Wi-Fi in there. It had its own HDMI, its own audio. It's a pretty secure, quiet room. It was the only brewery that had that in town, too. I mean, everywhere else was very much set up for the Saturday night, Sunday crowd popping through. There just wasn't there wasn't set up for event space. Yeah, we, we kept it clean, sterile. We had two big TVs up in there they could present stuff on. And then the only way you could see in there was from the brew floor. And they always had the option of covering that up, even if they didn't want me to see it. Uh, we would open that room up 7 a.m. You know, if you may want to come in, rent the space out, use it for a training day or something like that. Sure. And a lot of companies would. So you know, it's where classes were, too. Yeah, I think, yeah, we'll get to that. But a lot of companies would come in, rent the space out, like 7 o'clock in the morning, do team exercises until 4 o'clock, and then get off. And they would buy a tab for like $300 for their employees, you know, and they would do it for two or three days in a row. So it was, it was a win-win for us, you know. It was, it was too easy. It's like we're getting money for the event rental, and we're getting beer money at the end of the day. Um, and we're getting some advertising and stuff like that from them. The event space was excellent. And that was kind of our balance for not having food. Because people hated on us. And I mean, they fucking hated on us. Because we didn't have food. You guys are off the beaten path. Street Dale was like the original big brewery there. And they were right there. And y'all had no fucking problem going there. But now we're off the beaten path. Same damn building. Mm-hmm. New beer and new place. Now it's inconvenient to you. Got it. Because now you're going over to a place where there's six breweries... In one spot where you can park and hit them all. I got you. Well, and all owned by pretty much people. Yeah. Oh, we'll get into that. But, I mean, that's obviously a question everybody has to ask. And uh, 19 versus today, I think, is a different situation. So, you know, no judgment at all. But anyone to this day comes to me right now and says, I'm considering opening a brewery. And you say, you're not considering having food. I'm saying you're considering being broke. But do you think that was a mistake to not have food then? Like, do you think that made any much of a difference? The way I did this so i got to design the patio so the way i did this was when you drove up and you saw the brewery we had a big half garage door that slid down to a bar top where you could just hang out then a big opening garage door next to that another big opening garage door and another half bar top that actually went to the bar so you could be served beer out on the patio through this glass garage door and had the patio covered but i also had uh, electrical hooked up out there the power two to three food trucks at any given time. And we had big opening gates for them. And we made the space to where three food trucks could pull in and park and serve at any time. And you didn't have to leave your beer because in Alabama, you have to drink within the fence. You can't sit outside a fence area and drink beer. So I planned to have all these food trucks inside the fence where you could walk right out with your beer. Because everywhere else, like, fuck, you got to leave your beer here and walk outside and get food. And it would be an inconvenience for people. You know, back in the day when food trucks were really big and popular and everybody had to get food off the food trucks, they were just so cool, right? <laughs> I don't know how it is up there with you guys, but down here now, like, food trucks are like, yeah. shit about them. Down there, logistically, I think that they were cool pre-COVID. And then when COVID hit, and I know at least for here, because when I moved up here, I started a very corporate job. Like, I work from home now, but I worked at a, at a place, and that was the way, because all the restaurants were shut down. And so food trucks were kind of the way that, you know, you could still go and order something and walk away with it because it wasn't actual a physical seating area. But I think that that burnt everybody out on food trucks, you know, and, and that's why I kind of like the desire to hit the food trucks. And and not just that, but because the market's just become flooded with it. I mean, for every three food trucks out here, one of them does burgers and one of them does taco. It's just it's like, OK, we get it. You know, it's easy, it's cheap, it's the great food to do. But 
Well, not just that, but I mean, a lot of the fucking food trucks around here too. Were just, they were fucking hard to work with. They're yeah. assholes. Yeah, they want a certain amount of guaranteed sales, and they want everything. a thousand dollar minimum guarantee. It's like, I'm gonna make a thousand dollars. Like, what? I lose out big time. I was so mad at one of them that I made it a point to like literally name them and put the menu that I made for them in my book just to call them out for being pieces of shit because they had fucked me over in that sense. And like we made a residency where I said, okay, we need a symbiotic relationship. We need the food. So people leave between five and seven if we don't have it. So if you promise me you'll go, I promise you I'll spend money on marketing. I'll make a specific menu. I'll pay to print it. But I got to have the four weeks in a row because if I don't have them in a row, people won't get used to it. I can't say, dude, you missed it last weekend. And they were like, no, we totally get that. It'll build. They came one weekend, one day. It wasn't great. They never came back. And they didn't fucking tell me they weren't coming back. They just didn't come back. And but, I was like, you oh, know what? Dude, so it's so hard to get a food truck. But during COVID, every food truck loved us. We were their <laughs> best friends because we opened up like a commissary for them. We let them come in and say, hey, you know, it's during COVID. We can only sell beer to go at the time. We can even serve, you know, pine trailer down on the patio or inside. So we'd say, come get some beer to go. And while you're here, you can take some food home to your family. You know, yeah. help support these food trucks. And they loved it because food trucks are like, oh, hell yeah, this is the only way we're getting business right now. And it's like, no, I mean, it helps us out too. Just be able to grab some beer to go and go on their way, you know? Here's the thing with, and this is what I've seen a lot from here with the food trucks. A lot of times these food trucks, they see a brewery and they're like, okay, you know, this brewery's got a big following. I don't need to market that I'm going to be there. And we ran into it a lot with the guys that came out to Fractal, but seen in other places around town to where they're like, oh, well, the brewery is going to advertise that we're here, not realizing that, you know, hey, the whole reason, like if you're a brewery and you're bringing a food truck, you're not going to bring some no-name food, food truck in there, although they might be the easiest to work with. But if you bring a good food truck in there, you're also tying into the fact that you're bringing them in there not just to provide food to your patrons, but you're providing visibility to for your brewery to their market as well. And so there's going to be people that come to your brewery because they like that food truck. They could give a shit about your beer. They like that food truck and it's going to be there. And oh, by the way, it's somewhere that they can have a beer that night. And that's going to help be how they get introduced to, to the food trucks. You know, so that's the thing. But like what you what you said earlier about the about the food truck thing, too, was I was going to comment. So, you know, not having beer or not having food in the brewery or whatever. It's kind of like one of those those double-edged swords type thing to where it's like, you know, yeah, you're shooting yourself in the foot if you don't have food. But if you have food that's only of a certain style, you're also pigeonholing yourself, which I've seen in a brewery. Like I've been – I went to a brewery in Texas that only had tacos. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's Texas, but also I might feel like a beer and I don't want a taco, you know. Or like there was there was one back home in Charleston – that they only did like Italian food or something like that. Like they only did like fried ravioli and cheese sticks and pizza and stuff. It's one of those things that like, okay, cool. If you're going to serve food, have a broad enough menu that is going to appeal to everybody or, you know, a whole bunch of carbs with my carbs. Yeah. yeah fractal. You couldn't, you, there wasn't necessarily always a food truck, but you could always DoorDash food. You could always DoorDash. So that was, that yeah. was kind of the trade off there. It's like, you know, yeah, there wasn't food there, but you could also bring in the food you like versus, being pigeonholed and forced into only ordering like what food they had available and nothing there being appealing to you. And, and there was a, a local place. It's a local small coffee shop and a bakery, and they do some charcuterie boards and shit. And we present them the idea of like, hey, make us some little charcuterie sets, like a little box. And we call them charcutables. 
I'm going to trademark that, so don't <laughs> run off of that idea. But Patent pending. Yeah, patent pending. So they started making these and, and boxing them up and stealing them. And, I mean, they were good. And we would keep all four or five different options in the brewery, in the fridge, and we would advertise it. We would sell 20% of them. So then I'm yeah. sitting there thinking, like, these motherfuckers aren't that hungry. You know, they're just picky assholes. So why yeah. do we even keep trying? You know, they go to waste to the point where, like, they're three days past expiration. And I'm like, I'm not going to let go to waste. And I'll eat it. Shit. You know, the brewer's lunch. I experimented with doing, like, first come, first serve. But we just do 20 over a weekend. And it was stuff that I knew could last three days. And that worked okay, but the margins on it weren't great enough to make it. It just wasn't moving the needle. So yeah. I definitely think food's a problem, but at the same time, it, I don't know that I know the solution outside of like having an actual chef that can have an actual kitchen and have a, a menu that appeals. But that's not an easy thing to do. So You have to have a chef that not only knows food, but knows how to pair it with beer. Their menu is complementary to the type of beer that you're serving. And that can be a difficulty. It's kind of a, a really small niche. Not just that, but you need a chef that can make a good burger versus a good steak. Like I said earlier, nobody wants to pay $200 for a damn steak and a beer when they go out. If you're going out for a beer and you're like, I'm going to go up to the brewery and I want to get a beer and something, you're going to get a taco. You're going to get a burger. You're going to get a brat. You're going to get just something small, quick, and easy and cheap. You also don't want to wait an hour. Yes. Like you you want, it needs to be food that not just everything drop in the fryer, everything done by Chef Mike. It needs to be fast enough while still feeling authentic because if I'm sitting there having a beer, like, okay, I want that food up front, number one, to soak up the beer. So I can have more beer. But number two, you know, I don't want to sit there and if I'm only planning on like, hey, I just stopped in to have a beer or two and to get something to eat. I'm not looking at it being an hour long affair for like, you know, a steak and everything else like that. So that's where, you know, the burgers and like, you know, everything else is supposed to come into play. All right. So let's talk about the beer lineup. How did you decide what you were going to make? And so I know you had some flagships in there. Did you decide early on? These are the flags I'm going to stick in the sand as like what represents fractal or did you have some flexibility there or did you just start brewing shit and see what stuck to the wall like most of us did? So I, I went in with a lineup of what I wanted, not necessarily what I drink, but what I wanted in the sense of what I felt a brewery should be. And that's difficult to say these days when you find the hot sauce, pizza, bullshit, six point shit. But I went in knowing, hey, I like clean traditional styles. American Amber. I wanted a Pilsner, but I wanted it done in German style. I wanted a brown ale. I wanted just some of those old beers that really developed craft beer and helped craft beer become the monstrosity that it is today. You know, the pioneer styles. I didn't want a lactose bullshit. I didn't want marshmallow bullshit. I didn't want to, I didn't want to cover up flaws or try and cover up a good basic beer with bullshit adjuncts. So How'd that work out we had the cores. <laughs> the consumers want the bullshit. Fuck, fuck, I know. Fuck the consumer. Yeah, I guess the, the most exotic beer we did was guava mango sour because I knew I needed to have that sour. I was I was known for the sours around here. There still isn't to this day any other brewery in Huntsville that has like a known sour. Yeah, salt. It, it, it's usually like a seasonal thing or maybe something that's a one-and-done batch, but nobody else does sours in town. And that that was the hook and the lure for the hipsters and those consumers around this area and passing through and stuff like that. I was like, well, I'm going to eat Guava Mango, you know? Like, Guava Mango was our top-selling beer, but it was my most expensive beer, too. And the margins sucked on it. It was fucking terrible. You know, it's like, I want you to drink more Pilsner. I want you to drink more Amber. I put more focus and time and energy into my Amber and my Pilsner than did any other beer I think I've ever brewed. Because I wanted them to be just pristine. I wanted them to be good, you know? 
I want you to go in and then send the old guys. And that's what I get. I, I get compliments from old people that would go in and be like, this amber is amazing. This pilsner is amazing. Yeah. This IPA is good. Because I wanted like a more traditional style IPA, which was not familiar around here. Because everybody around here likes these multi-ass, oxidized hop, whatever, hazy, shitty. You have Huntsville is unique in the fact that there's, Number one, Huntsville is not like the rest of Alabama. It's very different. The, the citizens are the citizens here are pretty cultured. You have a very heavy German influence in town. Number one, from the large army base that's here. You know, most of them have been to station in Germany or something like that. But then also you have a heavy German influence that dates back to World War II from the German rocket scientists that were part of the Manhattan Project that were here, the Nazi rocket scientists that were here, that lived here, that helped develop a lot of the the missiles and things like that. So you have a long-standing German influence here. And so that's where there, there wasn't really any breweries also that were playing directly to that German influence. Yeah, you've got the NASCAR Roll Tide, you know, Miller Lite, Natty Lite yeah. on a Saturday crowd. But then also you, you've got a good market here if you know how to take your menu to it. And then also you've got the newer crowd that's coming up, the hipster crowd that he's talking about, because Huntsville was just named number one prospective tech center in the U.S. just recently. So you've got a lot of that computer science engineer crowd that's very much double hopped IPAs and sours and everything else. So you've got you've got both of those crowds. You've got the purists that have the German influence, and then you've got the, oh, I want whatever is cutting edge right now. So you were going to differentiate a little bit by doing some classic styles made well, and then continue with yes. sours and some yeah, trying shit. to perf- trying to perfect some of the classic styles. So I mean, we do some off the wall shit every once in a while because I knew I had to, and it fucking pained me, and it actually became a joke for us. So I fucking hate hazy IPAs. I think it's a bullshit style, and I think everybody that drinks them needs to grow the fuck up. So we started a series called Primality, the kickoff Primality uh, hazy IPA. I brewed a fucking Hefeweizen. <laughs> With half yeast and everything? Like, why is there banana in my IPA? Up, yeah, it was a straight it was a straight up Hefeweizen, and I just put, like, citra in it or something, and it fucking flew off the shelf, like, off the tab. Everybody's like, oh, man, this is great. This is so, so fucking good. I'm like, okay, cool. You know? And after that, I was like, okay, this is how this market really is. So it's just yeah. a joke at this point. Now you know so you're then, proud. like, formality. <laughs> right, so it was formality one, like... It, or probably two became a joke. I'm like, watch this. So I made a hard seltzer with no flavoring, just dry hopped it. Just this clear ass seltzer. And I was like, it's a hazy IPA. And people are like, oh, it's so good. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> just call it hazy IPA. People are going to drink it. It's a fucking hard seltzer. But it hops. One of the biggest beer events in town forever. You know, talk about the alternate version of beers was uh, the event they used to have at Fractal called Sauritage. There was nine sours lined up, bands and everything else like that. I mean, outside of Oktoberfest, that was pretty much the biggest, like, just straight beer event in in Huntsville. So, yeah, you've got on one side, you've got, you know, the Ambers and the and the Hefeweizens and and the Pilsners that are just winning awards left and right. And then on another hand, you've got nine different types of sours with a Beastie Boys cover band and a bunch of other you know, local rock acts that are just crashing. It's it's a weird community, but you have to know how to do it because otherwise you pigeonhole yourself into one market versus the other and you dry out. It's absolutely crazy. I mean, Sauritage is a good thing to actually bring up. So we did this event called Sauritage every year and we teamed up with a Beastie Boys cover group called the Beastie Boys. Uh, <laughs> good friends of mine. Uh, yeah, they're awesome. And they are 
pretty spot on. Yeah, yeah they're really, really good. I was like, okay, cool. You know, we're trying to come up with some kind of sour festival. I'm like, we need to do something tied to them. We'll raise money for mental health. I would brew all these sours in honor of them. And every year it would, it would kill, it'd kick ass. And we'd raise $10,000 plus for mental health in the area. And it was, I mean, it was, it was awesome. And we'd blow all the sours and everything was good. But I mean, you look around the room, it's like, I've never seen you before. I've never seen you before. I've never seen you. It's like 90% of the room you've never seen before. They only come out during sabotage or when you release a new sour or something like that. I said, like, okay, cool. You know, the fuck? <laughs> yeah, that's our market. Like, it, it, it sucks. I'm sure it's the market everywhere. It just fucking sucks. You know, you're like, this is what craft beer is. And in 2023, I don't even know what to define craft beer as. Well, it, There's it, no definition for it. It also doesn't help that so many craft places that are craft breweries have been so diluted by, they've all been snatched up by big companies. You look at InBev, you look at all the quote unquote craft brands that they own, or even, you know, going smaller than that here in the Southeast, one of the big uh, owners is Catawba. Catawba owns most of your big things. So like your Palmetto, Ale, Cigar City Brewing, uh, Westbrook, a lot of the big ones in the Southeast are owned by Catawba. So it's still like, you know, yeah, by definition, by if you look at like by barrel distribution, everything else like that. Okay, yeah, they're microbrewery, they're craft beer. But at the same time, you have so many different people that are just owned by one bigger company or like Oyster City. All their brewing is done by Palmetto Brewing Company, which is owned by Catawba. So, you know, it's like it's the who's on first you know, scenario of brewing company. So it becomes a, a situation of you know, okay, who truly is a craft brewer anymore? But then also, now you have these smaller guys like Fractal who are fighting over, fighting for shelf space and fighting for tap space with these other craft brewers that also have the leverage of having, you know, three, four, five, maybe sometimes 10 labels in their back pocket of saying, okay, yeah, we can give you one tap for your guava mango sour or we can go with Catawba, who can give us access to, you know, high lie IPA. You know, you combine that with the Alabama ABC business model to where, you know, it kind of fucks the actual small brewery. It makes it for a very non-viable business model within the state. Well, not just that, but when the distributors get incentives yeah. from some of these larger breweries, it's not saying they do, but but that's, not. But that's the thing that you have to look at when you're surveying a market. You have to look and say, okay... Not just how many other beers are in our are in our market, but you got a, a majority distribution company in the area. You have to look at how many brands they're carrying versus you. So you may look at it like say, okay, well, there's nine craft beer brands that are sold in this area, but seven of them are owned by the same parent company and distributed by the same person. So realistically, it's not one versus eight. It's one versus one versus seven. Yeah. Well, and that was one of the biggest mistakes I did was sign with the distributor that I did. They were the largest craft beer distributor in the state of Alabama. And that was a red flag to me immediately when they said that. Cause it's like, cool. Cause I'm going to have a whole bunch to compete with. Uh, the ownership team was just like, Oh, that, that's going to give us a foot. And I'm like, no, it, it's going to do the exact opposite because they have all these other brands that have been proven to them and get incentives from them so they're going to push them before they're going to push us unless we do something being the new guy on the block we didn't have a whole lot to you know here's here's some shirts for your team yeah they don't give a fuck about shirts you know they're like oh well so-and-so brewery is offering a vacation up to the mountains or blah 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 if you sell x amount of their kegs or whatever 
can't fucking compete with that bullshit. Yeah, and what yeah. you run into too is it just there's so many different brands all similar, right? So if you have an IPA, they've got twelve IPAs, they don't have an incentive to push any one IPA, really, except the one that's gonna make them more money and it's the easiest. And so when you touch with the big distributors, exactly. you run into really you can't even blame them. The sales guy is busy, he's overworked, he's just trying to get to sit at the end of the bar about three thirty in the afternoon and drink without having to think. Yeah. And if he has to explain what hops went into your IPA and he doesn't really know where Nelson Sauvin came from, he's just going to pitch him some shit that AB has in a portfolio. It's easier to sell. Like, 100%. But yeah. I mean, I had open comms with my distributor, you know, and I would always meet up and like every time event, like I would go out personally and do it. No matter where it was, I would drive out, I would go do it. And I would talk, you know, and I mean, we didn't have a sales rep. So I was the sales rep. I was the guy who was doing everything, which was okay, you know, because I knew at least that way, the right information is being presented and passed. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have to worry about a sales rep trying to tell somebody the, quote, Citra IPA has cascade in it. You know, like, no. That's an important part, too, is that, you know, when you pick your distributor, make sure your distributor is being a good representative of you. Because guy. especially in a market like this to where you're either a brewery, you know, th- there's not that many tap rooms. There's not that many bottle shops around here. You're either a brewery that's selling your own stuff or you're a mom and pop sports bar that is mainly selling, you know, Blue Moon and Anheuser-Busch products that might have one of your taps open. You know, make sure that your distributor is giving that proper attention. And, and I'll give you I'll give you a perfect example. So name names then. about about a year and a half ago, went to a restaurant called Twin Peaks. Mm, oh, I've heard of those places. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Went to a restaurant <laughs> called, called Twin Peaks. The only beer that they that he had they had on top of his was uh, the guava mango, and they sold the shit. Yeah, they buy it in half barrels. Yeah. And actually, good. and actually, guava degrees. mango. I don't know if I want to drink it at twenty eight degrees. Yeah. The, <laughs> just twenty. No, we're gonna get there. So the guava mango actually was like one of the biggest sellers in like restaurants and stuff out here. Usually, if you saw a fractal tap, it was the guava mango, and if it wasn't the guava mango, it was the amber. But most of the time, it was guava mango because nobody else distributed a sour around here. So I got the guava mango. I ordered it. The waitress brought it out to me, and it tasted like liquid warheads. And the reason is exactly like you said. Their whole thing is they keep all their beer basically right at freezing temperatures or whatever. Now, at that temperature for a sour, the puree separates out from the actual sour itself. There's no so body at all. What I was getting on the tap was just the just the sour portion of it. And so I called the waitress, I told her, I said, I said, hey, you know, this this is crap, you know, it's it's not tasting right. She's all right, let me go get the manager. And she didn't know he was sitting across the table from me. We were in a little little bit of a group. And so she goes to the manager and the manager's like, Well, that beer is shit anyway. We don't sell any of it. Wow. Type thing. And so, you know, at the time they're going through a half barrel a week. Yeah. And so that was the thing of like, you know, it's the beer wasn't bad. They just didn't know how to serve it. They didn't know how to how to store it. And incidentally, he got on the phone with the distributor and said, "Hey, we're not selling to this place anymore." Yeah, and we pet- waitress's heart. She, yeah, she yeah. yeah. She came back. It's like, and my manager said he doesn't give a shit. And he goes, "Oh, well, that's the brewer on the own." That's one of the things. Is like you have to be with a distributor that's going to be a good representative of your brand. That's going to do things like you know, say, "Hey, this beer can't be stored at the same temperature as your Miller Lite," or like, "Hey, 
this beer doesn't belong in a shaker glass. You need to actually have, you know, a snifter or a pilsner glass or something to properly serve it. I think that that's an important part, too, because you, you have to have somebody that's going to be willing to say to sell your brand and sell it right. Because somebody is walking into Twin Peaks that has never had a fractal guava mango sour before and tasted that would never show up to the tap room because they're like, wow. This is absolute ass. I'm not making the trip out there to go have anything else by this person versus if they have a good experience with the beer on the tap at a third party premises, they're going to be like, oh, wow, I love this. I'm going to go and drink some more somewhere else. Yeah. So your point is find a distributor that's good and stick with that distributor. That is easier said than done in many cases. I would be curious. Absolutely. How, and, and maybe Larry ran the show on this one, but how did you guys get with that distributor? Were there multiple interviews with various different distributors that covered things regionally? And then that was the simplest one because it was statewide? Or did you so have a choice? <laughs> having brewed other breweries, I, I knew a lot of the other distributors because every brewery I've worked at had a different distributor. So they all knew who I was. And while we were building out, there were only maybe three out of five or whatever it may be. Um, we're coming up and beating on our door consistently and saying, Hey, we, let's talk, let's talk, let's talk. You know, like the owners want to fly in from wherever and talk to you guys and sample the wares and see what you got going on, see what your idea is, see what your plan is. And we did multiple interview rounds with a lot of different distributors asking questions like, what can format? You know, we had some tell us 16 ounces is the only way to go with cans, you know, and I'm like, it's not, but okay, you know. And I've had distributors tell me, oh, well, you got to have this, this, and this. Like, well, 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 I don't work for you. So hold on. You know, you guys are working with us. No way it works for anybody. We need to work hand in hand with each other to make this work and profitable for both of us. And the distributor we ended up signing with had been trying to get me to sign with them when I was at Below the Radar. But we were already under contract with somebody else. And the state of Alabama, they're, Franchise once you sign with a distributor, you are, it's an, it's an Islamic marriage. I mean, you are... That's it, you know. We signed with them, um, went down toward their warehouse, talked to them quite a bit. I had a good vibe just because that, that distributor had talked to me quite a bit, you know, and I had a good friendship with them and stuff. I was like, I think he'll get out the front. Um, like I said, they did have the largest craft beer portfolio, and that was kind of the red flag for me when they said that. I was like, well, maybe we should kind of work this out, you know, but it's like, do we go with the, the Bud Light Budweiser guys or do we go with the Sierra Nevada guys, you know? Like, there are a lot of things to weigh out. And honestly, I'll say it, looking back at it, I wish I would have gone with the guys that sold Sierra Nevada and stuff because they sell a lot of wine and their sales reps put a lot of energy and effort into getting their products out there. They understand the hand sale mentality. Yeah. It would have worked out a hell of a lot better for them rather than push down the line of all these big craft breweries and some of the local craft breweries and regional craft breweries and everything else are giving incentives and stuff. You know, we're kind of small new guys on the totem pole. I ain't give a fuck about us. Well, you're pushing forward. I was going to have that be the opener for the third section. So I'm going to go ahead and take a quick break. Call six. I don't have any beer left. And then I want you to tell me all about what you should have done. <laughs> I'll be right back. If he were interested in anything his old dad was interested in, my son would say it's something like, y'all need to be fucking with PR. Your booze business is more than just an online profile. Fine, keep doing your limited can release and your meet the beer tender posts, but it's time to think bigger than just cheesy marketing. Better, more professional. Brittany Hanning has years of experience turning big ideas into targeted communication in the beverage alcohol business, and her PR firm, 
Metamezure Communications can tighten your image with expert services ranging from AI generation all the way to media relations. See, people in this industry love to talk about the importance of branding and media outreach, but don't kid yourself for a second. You need an expert to navigate that stuff. So go to the website at M2MCOMMS, M2MCOMS, look them up in San Francisco, or just ask me for Brittany's number. But seriously, stop screwing around and get your image right today. Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb, considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president. Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers. Shaq managed to play ball real good, and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they've got you covered on that front too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at Brewery Direct at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. So tell me a little bit about the distributor thing. So uh, this is always an issue. You get set up with someone, it's a challenge, you're struggling, you can't get away, state law, franchise law, it's a fucking problem. You, you have other distributors maybe that are interested, but you can't go, and in a sense, you're stuck. So what do you do? What did you, what did you do? Oh, man. It, it's kind of like, so I have a five-year-old and a, a three-year-old, so it's very fresh to me. So it's kind of like having a newborn, you know, and you're, you're, you're going through that phase with them, you know, and trying to teach them the world, how things are. They're new to you, and you're new to them, right? And you're trying to show them how to walk. But you're trying to teach them how to sell your brand, how to get your beer out there. And you invite them over to have some of your beers, but they're all too busy or too caught up doing something else or too focused on incentives for other breweries or whatever fuck it may be, right? To say that I signed with the wrong one is um, not enough to get my point across. I'm not going to say that maybe I signed with another one. It may have been better. I don't know. But it, it would probably have been better. Working with a distributor was probably the most painful, most difficult part of actually running the brewery, growing the brand, getting awareness out there, because now you're barely making anything giving them the product. They're making the money, not us. And you're counting on them to get out there and sell for you while they have all this other stuff. Being the new guy, they don't give a fuck. I mean, that's the best way to put it. Or being the brand that doesn't have seven other labels to go with them, like the Catavas, like the InBabs, things like that. They just don't give a shit about you. You're on the back burner. So where were the struggle points the most? Were there markets that you should have been in that you weren't? Were there brands that they wouldn't pick up enough of or sell as quickly of? Like, what, What are some of the big problems you had? Originally, we signed just in our county, the territory with them. About three months later, we went full state with them. And we were the only local brewery that was full state with them. All the others that signed different distributors, different areas, whatever, you know? It's like, cool. This should help you guys out. You should be motivated. You should go down and crush it, right? Lower Alabama, the beach area, especially with our IPA Infinite Coast. On the coastline, you should be able to go down. You should be able to kill it. You should be able to crush it. Guava Mango, you should be able to go down and do it. You know, yeah, both, both very super crushable beers in a state that has a big, around here in Huntsville and down on the coast, big affinity for like being on the water, outdoors, things like that. Crushable beers are the way to go in Alabama. Which yeah. has to be true. The beer has to be good because Ben wouldn't say that otherwise. He's my litmus test. So they, there you go. Yes. You know, and the multi-IPAs is only that around here. They work. But like I said, I was going on the far spectrum. I was, I was trying to replicate that stone IPA that I love so much, you know? Yeah. But you get people that hated it or loved it because like, oh, this is hoppy as shit. No fucking shit it is. You're drinking a fucking... Yeah. <laughs> like, do your fucking homework. I'm not I'm not here to teach the consumer. 
<laughs> you know, and that was something I had to work with my ownership team and my staff is like, we're not here to educate. You know, it's like being a car sales. It's not my job to be like, well, I'm better than this brand because I'm this brand and I can do this, 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 and this. No, fuck that. Do your homework before you come up here. By not educating, do you mean the distributor or the consumer? The consumer. Okay. Yeah. Distributor, they need to be educated a hell of a lot more. And we we tried. We did everything we could. I even did like a presentation in a class on all of our brands and everything like that for distributors. But they would also never show up. We would offer to do things. I would print out sales sheets for them. And I would consistently look at monthly reports. And it's like our local area was killing, which should for any brewery. But you look at the numbers, it's like, fuck, man, there's no improvement in the other areas. None of the other sales reps know who we are because we don't actually have a sales rep in the brewery that's going down there and taking them out to lunch mm-hmm. or buying them beers. We're doing all this stuff with them all the time, right? And that's that relationship thing. And that's that incentive thing. If you're not down there in front of these people and the opposite end of your state, taking them out to lunch, taking them out to dinner, schmoozing them, you know, and becoming their best friend, they don't give a fuck about you. And that's the thing. You can brew the best beer in the region, the state, whatever it may be. They don't care about you. They're going to focus on that brand that's in their face, taking them out to lunch, giving them stuff. I don't blame them. You know, I don't. If I was a sales rep and somebody came down and bought me dinner all the time and I brewed the shittiest fucking beer. Well, there's not there's not a lot of money to be made in Alabama for craft beer anyways, because of how thin the profit margins are, you know, thanks to Alabama ABC and everything else. I mean, you know, when you have Fractal, that is a small company that is trying to stay competitive with the craft brewing labels or the Anheuser-Busch's who have a much larger profit margin because their production costs are way down because of their ability to mass produce. Number one, there's not that much money for these smaller craft breweries. But then number two, there's not a lot of money to be made to the distribution companies to actually bring people on that are like no shit like beer nerds that know the beer industries. They're basically, it's going to sound wrong, you're competing with people that are in the lower range of the pay. So you're getting who you can get that can drive the truck that at least has drank a beer in their lifetime, but not necessarily knows the difference between a double IPA or an imperial IPA or a sour and a seltzer type thing. In the rest of the world, great salespeople don't work for 35 grand a year. And uh, you can make just about double that uh, at an entry position if you're decent at sales. You can sell fucking chemicals and make 75 grand a year. So yeah, that's mm-hmm. the hard part about the industry is there's not enough money to really incentivize people to be excellent. And it makes it a challenge, but we all struggle with it. We talked about some shit on distributors and we'll get back to that probably, but before we really talk about tearing the brewery down, walking away and what went wrong, let's at least spend a little time talking about some good shit. Like what are some of your favorite memories? What are your favorite beers you made? Like what were the wins that oh, you're taking shit. away? Yeah, so I mean, I mean, the wins most definitely, building a good community with the brewery. I mean, that was something that we were focused on was making it a community central point. So when COVID happened, we teamed up up with a medical company where they came in and they distributed masks and hand sanitizer and I gave up about 90% of my production area and had to play Tetris every day with pallets stacked up the roof with forklift trying to get the grain or whatever I needed to do. I think that was really good in the sense of what we were doing, teaming up with them to do that and help out the community with the food trucks as well during that time, even though they fucked us later on. I mean, sabotage, giving back to the mental health community. Like I'm diagnosed with PTSD, been here as well. I mean, it's just a natural thing being our era of military. That's what I was going to ask is why mental health? Is that just something that was near and dear to your heart that you said that I want to do this? Yes. And I mean, we know it's a big need this day in a lot of communities, even with people who didn't serve or anything like that. I mean, mental health is a real thing, you know, and it's been overlooked. But even in the civilian community, it's just come up as like an okay thing to talk openly about in the last few years. 
But in the military, I mean, even to this day, you're taught like, hey, we know you've got your demons. You better push that shit way down yeah. because if you tell anybody about it, you're going to get help, but you're going to get pushed out of the military. It's going to cost your career type thing. So I was in Iraq in 06, and this was kind of like my first big thing. I was in downtown Baghdad. I mean, we were getting rocketed and shot at on the daily basis. And I came back and, you know, there's there's things I can't talk about, like just because I don't remember it. Not because I they're classified. Or, I don't remember it because my, that part of my brain has shut out. But along with that, I've forgotten all these memories about my kids growing up. I can't remember things that me and my wife did, but it's because I didn't go and seek help. So that's why it's like, it's a big speaking point. And like, you see a lot of vets and brews and things like that. There's a lot of brewer, veteran-owned breweries that are lean towards like doing veterans causes because you know it's, we, they understand that you can sit there and say oh yeah I understand you know because 22 a day and you know all these veterans are committing suicide but in, until you live that of like hey you better push that shit way down you don't really know but that's the good thing about the beer community too is that because it is a lot more approachable that way you won't see that in like you know the burger joints or and like the golf, the pro shop at your golf course, things like that. But the brewing community, it's a lot more personable for whatever reason. And that was a big goal with Fractal, too, is I, I tried to make it a lot of veteran focused. Even being the very minority owner of the place and everything, just being a Marine veteran, I tried to make it that location where veterans could go. They could hang out. They could feel comfortable knowing that they're in similar company. Uh, we did a Marine Corps birthday every year, which is actually, that was actually larger than Sauertage Fractoberfest. It was our largest event. That we did every year. It was crazy. Last year, we actually had Vincent Vargas come out, an actor. Uh, he came out. He's written books and an actor and a lot of different shows. He's off of the Mayans, which is the uh, yeah. Sons of Anarchy spinoff. He came out with his wife. Very kind, very great people. And yeah. helped us raise money and do stuff for a great cause for helping veterans. So we have a wrinkle birthday every year. We try to raise money for local veterans in the area for their cause. Same. St. Baldrick's. Yeah, St. Baldrick's. We did St. Baldrick's for pediatric cancer. Yeah. I lost my eyebrows that Same day. Same here. We both shaved our eyebrows off this yeah. year. We were both bald all up here. I mean, we've already got, I can't offer up my hair or anything else like that and it make a difference, but we raised $2,000 just by shaving off our eyebrows. And so that's the thing is, once again, that's the kind of like culture that you can breed in a place like a brewery that, you know, is unmatched to almost any other commercial enterprise in the community. That's one thing I have to pride Fractal on. It's like we did try to be community focused in that aspect. We wanted to help people. We wanted to be that that vibing place. We weren't money hungry. You know, it's not like we're here to get you a beer. Come in, drink a water. Here's our self-serving water fountain, you know. Don't care. Craft root beer. Yeah, I made craft root beer, non-alcoholic root beer. Great. Sold the kids, you know, $3 a pint. But it wasn't money grabbing kind of stuff that we were trying to do. It was, it was more community focused, you know, like we wanted to somehow try and make a difference, which I don't know, may have would close our doors, trying to be the good guys. I don't fucking know. They could um, be. I don't know. I interview a lot of people who are assholes that close their door too. Yeah. Oh, I'm a fucking asshole. Dude. Don't get to say. Yeah. All right. When it comes to other people and kids and stuff, I'm like, dude, you got the biggest heart, man. I can't help it. I got a five-year-old and three-year-old. I got the biggest heart. What My about, wife will tell you that. I'm the sucker of the house. What about collabs? Do you have any great stories of like collaborating with your local Oh, God, dude. Yes. Fuck. So locally getting collabs done was like the most difficult thing. Really? And it's just because everybody's so cutthroat around here. It's mm. fucking crazy. Street Dale would probably have been the closest one I got in a collab done with, but we just never got together to do it. I mean, I collabed with breweries down in Birmingham. When I first opened, we did one called uh, Fern and Fawn. So they were called Ferris. The brewer left. Fucking um, great. Very small, unknown brewery just produced fucking great product all the time. When they first opened. With, uh, yeah, when that, when they had the original brewer there. When that brewer was there. When they first opened. And that's why I went down there and did it, because I was like, all right, let's yeah. do this. You know, Fern and Fawn, here we go. 
you know, went down there, we brewed it, we did 30 barrels of it, half of it got split up to go into a cool ship and get soured and barreled and later released. And then they came up here, we brewed it, you know, and then everybody's like, why the fuck is Fractal brewing a collab with Ferris? And then whole Birmingham's like, why the fuck is Ferris brewing a collab with oh, somebody yeah. in Huntsville? Yeah, you know, it's like that cut throat and it's like, because we don't give a fuck, we're cool with each other and we want to help each other and we want to we want to see what we can do together. You know, what, what can we brew and create and make that's going to be cool and good and better with each other you know that was a big thing i see collabs more of a learning experience i can go see how you work your brewery how you do things and then come to my place i mean every collab i've ever done has always been that way so i collab with them i did a collab with dynasty brewing up in dc one year i did a collab with jasper yeast I actually got a wild yeast strain off them that was cultivated from a barrel found on a archaeological dig site that was aged back to the 1800s. That's cool. Yeah, I did a grisette with it, and it was it was fucking crazy. It was cool. I didn't know what the hell was going to happen, but it fermented out, and it did really good. And, and then the the veteran hops. Veteran hops, yeah. So I was on the YCA veteran hop blend panel every year. I bought every year. And then for the past three years, four years, I was on the panel for help selecting. There was only 20 veteran owned or operated breweries in the U.S. Yeah. And that was one of the cool things about it being veteran owned and having, you know, a cool community is that he always brought in other vets. Uh, So it was me. There was like a Coast Guard guy, an Army guy, another, you know, another Air Force guy that all came in and chose it. So it wasn't just him choosing it. He brought in other vets to help choose. Pretty it. sure I was probably the only brewery out of those 20 that actually opened it up to the other veterans because I wanted to be community involved. I wanted others to get involved. You know, like it's no fun if I'm sitting there by myself and like, oh, I'm a veteran and blah, blah, blah. This is my pick. You know, we'd actually sit there with other veterans and I would I would teach them the, the selection, the how to rub hops, how to smell them, how to detect them. Yeah. How to down descriptions. And then not only that, but the beer that was brewed from those hops was always a beer that a portion of the proceeds went to a veteran's cause. Yeah. Which was also a, a big deal. So, you know, it's, it's one of those full circle things. Yeah. We'd always brew a double black IPA that we call it Valor. Yeah. We'd release it around the Marine Corps birthday. Great. It always went quick, too. I mean, it was a great beer. Yeah, it, was, it was our cool partnership with the community. And then, of course, being on the YCH hot panel with that. But that's one of the things is like a lot of people look at breweries as just a, a commercial venture. And, you know, coming from like the early influence in my life of getting exposed to the British pub, I lived off base in England and seeing that that pub was the social center. It was the town center. And I think that a lot of times, you know, a lot of breweries, they miss that mark. They miss that opportunity to where it's just viewed as a commercial center. And they miss that possibility of maybe not as far as like cheers where everybody knows your name type thing but you know of being a strong cultural influence you know especially when you're in a small market like alabama to where there's not a lot of breweries it may not necessarily be possible in your Asheville, north carolinas your charleston south carolinas things like that to where spin around blindfolded throw a rock you'll hit a brewery but if you're starting up in a small area you you definitely have that potential to not just make good beer but to make a good community. Yeah, well, obviously that's some of the best memories you have too, so it's important no matter what, you can take that with you. What about awards? I know you won some after you closed. What, did you win some before? Yeah, fuck. Yeah, <laughs> Amber. Fuck Amber. Going back to Below the Radar, so I actually took Below the Radar, their first medals, first awards, anything they ever fucking had back in 2018, 2017, whatever it was, which was mind-blowing. That's when I had some of the owners, especially... Uh, Steve, and you're just like, man, this is incredible. Like, thank you for bringing this highlight, this attention to us. You know, I'm like, well, this is 
kind of where we need to be. You know, it's like being in the military, I, I always wanted to do better, you know, and I brought that over with me in the craft beer community. It's like, I, I want to achieve things. I want to see what I can do, see what I can earn, especially at Fractal. Being the new guys on the block, I mean, we weren't even in 40 years, and I took over 20 medals for Fractal alone. The shit, they were all world and international medals. You know, we didn't do any state competitions for them because at that point, I said, fuck state competitions because I don't feel like I'm earning anything from a state competition. If I'm just competing with my local peers, I'm not gaining anything from it. You yeah. know, I want to compete with a brewery in Germany. I want to compete with a brewery in Colorado. I want to compete with everybody. Everybody has the opportunity. So I want to say it was like 23, 25 international world med- medals that we took. I have maybe two local achievements. And I wouldn't say they're medals or anything like that. It's just, hey, your beer kicked first at this technology event with NASA and blah, 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 blah. So here's a rocket with your beer, you know? Cool. Thanks. You know, or we've got to the local Trash Pandas baseball game and have a beer fest out there and like your beer kicked first. Here's a ceramic growler saying number one at Trash Pandas baseball game or whatever, you know? Okay, cool. You know, those are, they're on my shelves at home, but I mean, it's the medals and everything that ring most with me because I want to say those are all the highlights the achievements those are what i was really pursuing and it's not to build up my ego it's more of a hey don't overlook us we're trying we're doing everything we can you know because we still had to buy into those too yeah you know and i've heard all kinds of shit oh you paid for those medals so did a lot of other people who didn't get those medals yeah a lot of people paid to uh, participate but yeah a lot of people paid to get into that doesn't mean you win shit. You have a very, especially in a community that like Alabama is with craft beer to where there is a very big disparity between, you know, and it's not meant as any disrespect to places like Straight to Ale, you know, Yellow Hammer, Trim Tap, some of these brewing companies that have been around for a while in the state because they're really big advocates of the Free the Hops that kind of allowed craft beer to be here. But Straight to Ale is immune to everything tonight. So yeah. throw it out there. I love Straight to Ale. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, because they they were a very big advocate and they've actually, you know, we talk about breweries being owned by other breweries type thing. They're actually one of the few breweries, I think, that have actually used their success for good because when a lot of other Huntsville breweries around the area were failing during COVID, they bought them, like they provide them, not in a power move, but to keep them, keep them going. So I'll say that when you have a place like Huntsville, or even if you look at like, I say Charleston all the time because it's my hometown, but you have, you know, one or two very big breweries in there. You've got Westbrook and you've got Palmetto Brewing Company, which are very well known in Charleston, but you've got 15 other breweries. The same kind of thing within Huntsville is there's this very big disparity between like the very big brands and everybody else. And so it's a constant fight of like, you know, Straight Dale, Yellow Hammer, a couple others can survive off of just name recognition alone. You've got everybody else that is like trying to say, hey, I'm here too. I'm doing something that's worthwhile. And that's where these medals and the awards come into play. Yeah, like Straight Dale would, I mean, they would always give me a head nod. You know, I walk into their place. Most of the bar staff knows me, gives me a head nod. The owners give me a head nod. The brewer always walks out. We shake hands. They invite me back there. They tell me what's going on. It's just a great relationship with Straight Dale. A good thing too about like our event space and things I'm proud of is so I actually use Fractal as a teaching space as well. So I taught at a local community college, uh, Calhoun Community College, and they came to me right after COVID. It's like, we need something else, workforce development program. We need something cool. We know brewing is a blue collar job and something needs to be more available to people. I was like, okay, cool. Chat about it. I came up with a curriculum for two different courses, professional and home brewing, six week course, and then an 18 week course. I successfully wrote up 
all the curriculum for it, fill up every class. They were actually overflowing to the point where people would call me like, hey, you have 10 people allotted for this, but you have 14 people that want to sign up for it. Which, by the way, we always sponsored two veterans to go through the class for free. Oh, that's cool. We did. Yeah, we always made sure the veterans got through. Um, I always love veterans got volunteer at Fractal as well. Yeah. I guess I use myself as a veteran hiring force as well, training force. But I got to teach a lot of homebrewers through there. And we're talking like people who didn't know what fermentation was. And then we had people that like, I know everything. And they'd get my class. The everything guys were the fun ones because I'd get them to eat the hops, tell me what they taste like. That's how much they knew. These are also, talk about the homebrewers. The whole podcast is how not to start a damn brewery. And I'll say this, if you're a homebrewer thinking about starting a brewery just because all your friends tell you your beer is <laughs> Your, your shitty beer, your shitty beer is good. How good would your beer be, or how willing would they be to buy that beer? Because we saw a lot of those that would come through the home brewing class. Would I pay seven dollars a pint for my own beer on a regular basis? Not just like, hey, I'm going to support you. I'm going to go out to your opening night, buy a beer, and then never show up again. Like, is it something you're regularly going to pay for? Because a lot of those people in the brewery class of, oh, my friends tell me I'm trying to learn more so I can open a brewery. Okay, cool story, bro. You and everybody else that makes a, you know, double hopped IPA from off of a recipe off of Google or whatever, but is it good enough to stand the test of time? I try to do only like a little bit of research, but one of the articles that I found was, I don't know exactly what because I didn't write it down, but someone had interviewed Robo in like 1920 and he said something along the lines of like, it was a big change when all of a sudden people started being fucking honest with me because <laughs> when I made beer in the garage, they were just like, oh, this is fine. It's great. And then as a professional brewer, they're Let's like, try. wait a minute, here's what's wrong with this. I have a lot of home brewers in the area that hate on me for that shit. They'll like, come out to our meeting or every year I judge the local NASA regional homebrew competition. This year, they, uh, I think they intentionally skipped over me because every year I provide crucial feedback and I'm one of you like certified in the area to actually judge this shit. And it's a bunch of NASA guys, you know, and I'm, I will write my name down on it and be like, Here's my phone number too. You can call me about your feedback, you know? Yeah. Like it's it's really 98% of the beer that comes through those competitions. It sucks. Like it's really easy to sell your shitty extract kit golden ale to, you know, the guys in your HOA. But when you actually have to tell them to, you know, leave, the, get in their car and leave the neighborhood to go and buy your beer somewhere, that's when the, the true fact Yeah, is. how much do you like? You going to pay for it? Yeah, well, I'm passing three other breweries on the way. Tip jar. All right. Five next so- homebrew shit. My, my left foot is starting to go numb, and I think it's because we've been talking a little too much positive talk for the last few minutes, so I need to take a break, clear the slate. When I come back, let's talk about what the fuck went wrong. All right, be right back. Are you thinking about paying retail for your brewery equipment? Well, since we all came and learned how to make good decisions, I'm going to hit you with some knowledge, so pay close attention. BrewBids is the only badass online marketplace to buy and sell new and used equipment. Maybe you're in the market to buy because you learned how to open a brewery the right way and know that overspending can be fatal. Maybe you're expanding up or down and you know that stainless steel lasts forever so it's really even better than new. Or maybe you're a guest of the show and you need a place to liquidate all your brewery equipment before the bank comes in and takes it. Doesn't matter. Each of you should be logging on to BrewBids.com right now, creating your account and connecting with the equipment you need. Get smart, get brew bids, and get busy making beer. All right, so we're going to get into it. Ben walked away, but he'll come back in and jump in on us, I'm sure. So talk to me about, let's let's get into it. Like, when did it change? Like, when, obviously, you in the beginning, you're growing. COVID happens. It's always a shit show for everybody. You come back out of it. You're growing. You have plans for the future. And at some point, for me, it was multiple points. Like, I kept seeing 
you know, I always joke, like, it's like an EKG. It just it jumps all over the goddamn place. I should have probably closed six different times. I didn't. And then finally, I at the end, I got out. But what was it like for you? Like, what was the struggle? What was the change? Man, there were, there were a lot of opportunities. Like, even during COVID, we were offered some buyouts. Just because in the first six months, we were doing pretty well beer-wise. And notoriety of the brewery and the name of the brand... I know there, there's no way we can we can sell it in six months or yeah. less than a year. There's no way, you know, for if we're getting offers like that during COVID, dude, we're going to keep going. You know, there's potential here. We see it. I said just minority owner myself, but I was the guy in the trenches. I was I was the grunt. I was the guy doing all the shit. You know, I was I was customer facing. I was brew house facing. I was everything facing. I was all employee facing. Ah, oh, shit. I mean, it, it, it's hard to say. I mean... I mean, were you consistently producing mm-hmm. the same output with distributors and then something changed? Were you seeing, like... I know we, a lot of people said it. no one came back after COVID in a way. Like, they never were able to get 2019 numbers again. So, we were actually talking about canning line right before COVID. The potential for it. Like, I wanted to open with canning line. The owners weren't on board with it just yet because they're like, well, we need to grow into that. And I'm like, well, it might be something we need to open with. Because if we can open with every format possible, we're going to be good, right? When COVID happened, and it's like, shit, you can only get beer at grocery stores. People are rushing to get their toilet paper. They're rushing to get their canned soup, and they're rushing to get their beer. You know, like, that's it. So it's like, shit, man, now's the time we do this. Well, we got a a little after the pandemic really kicked off, which put us a little late to the game. But we were still able to get into distribution with cans and do well. We hired a really good marketing firm out in California that did an excellent job with all of our labels and what we were trying to execute. No blame on the canning, no blame on the marketing side of things. I, I would honestly, it's going to sound shitty to redirect focus on somebody else or something else. But one thing we consistently got complaints on, and you can go to our Google reviews to this. Yeah, he's laughing. Ben's laughing right now. He knows. I know. One thing you can consistently check up on us was bartender reviews. That's a weird anomaly that we don't normally hear. You had bartenders at other places that were reviewing you negatively? No. No. Reviews on our bartenders. Attitudes Uh, of the bartenders. No. So I saw this a little bit when I – I don't look at a lot of reviews anymore. I used to all the time and it it consumed me. And so the whole conversation would be like, fuck on tap. So I tried to really look. But I did hear this, that there was some rudeness of bartenders or something to that effect that I heard consistently. Yeah. um, We hired a taproom manager who was probably way too inexperienced to be able to handle what we were throwing at him. Like canceling food truck on bite nights. All kinds of stuff. I mean, pissed off food trucks, pissed off the community, did all kinds of things wrong. Our staff, and I mean, this is something I would preach to anybody that wants to open a fucking brewery. Go through two or three interviews with everybody that you want to hire for your place. Whether it's a fucking bartender, whether it's an event coordinator, whether it's a sellerman, whatever it may be. Make sure that's who you want to hire. And I'll say it again. Make sure that is who you want to hire. My biggest go back is reevaluating who I could hire and who I hired because I think I I did it wrong and and, and, re- there. and realizing at times that they're going to be the only person in there that is advocating or that is the face of your your company. Exactly. And, and that was one of the things. The brewer like and the brewing yeah. team can't always be there. And they are the most passionate in your brewery. 
because they're there. They put the sweat, the energy, the effort into making that product. So they care the most. The bartender, the taproom manager, all that, they're there to see how much money they can make. For tips. Yeah. Yeah, they're there for tips. Even if you pay them the highest. We were paying a flat rate two to three times higher than any average bar brewery around this area. On top of tips. On top of tips. And they would still complain. Oh, well, I'm not getting this one. Well, I just got this review about you. Maybe if you weren't being an asshole, you would have gotten a little bit more tip, you know? And when it came down to it, and you you break it down on an average, right, they're making damn good money. Damn good money. Uh-huh. You know? And it's like, fuck, man. Like, they're making more money than the brewing is. So you started And to all get, they have to do is... So you started to get, like, a negative uh, reputation for, like, the hospitality piece of it in the tasting room? Yes. Yes. Is the, your... the customer face. Yeah, yes. most lucrative and that was, part. It kind of goes hand in hand with the situation of like, you know, the distributors too, is you have to be careful about who you, because the, the brewers, the brewers are always going to be passionate about your business. You know, you're putting your blood, sweat and tears into making that beer and perfecting that beer. It's everybody else that is the face of that product and that touches that product afterwards that really is out of your hands other than making sure you choose the right people. Because, you know, whether it's your staff that's serving the beer or your distributors that's taking the beer out and advocating for it for shelf space, those are the people that are representing your beer outside of the brewery or when you're not around. Yeah. So one the good thing I can give about Below the Radar, when I was over there, if I ever had a problem with a bartender serving a beer the wrong way or something like that, and I even did classes on it, and if they did it just because they were lazy or they just said no, I like using it. I can work with stupid but I can't work with willful stupid. And I've dealt with a lot of willful stupid. <laughs> I've seen it over past few breweries I've worked at and owned. You know, like there, there's a lot of willful stupid. Like you're doing this just because you're mad. You're you're having a bad day and you're going to reflect the company in that manner or that way. And below the radar, if I ever had a problem, I'd take it up to the management and the owner and they just be like, you're more valuable than them. We can replace the bartender. They're gone. You know, and, I mean, it sucks to say that. And it, it, I mean, it's not to sound like a douche. But I mean, that's the way it goes or it should go. You know, like your your bartender, if they suck at it or if they don't care and they're putting forth that energy and you have a brewer in the back, whether it's your, your head brewer or your shift brewer or your brewmaster or whatever the hell it may be. And they're back there and they're getting irritated because the bar comes out giving a fuck. Which one are you going to get rid of? Get rid of that fucking bartender. Replace them. They're easier to replace. When I got to Fractal, I didn't really get those calls. I didn't get to make those shots, those decisions. I had to deal with who I got because I was back house. And that was what I owned, what I operated. So I had to deal with a lot of bartenders and up front house staff. Just They didn't give a shit. I would overhear them say around the corner, oh, if I don't get this this way or if I don't get a fucking employee appreciation day or whatever, I'm going to fucking go somewhere else. Like, And all I could do is walk around the corner and be like, but it goes back to kind of like the conversation we were talking about earlier with Ferris Brewing Company out of Birmingham is that when they had the one brewer, they were like the shit. Okay, we're going to see big things out of the. When that brewer left, it kind of was like, you know, they dropped off the radar. And it goes back to, you know, if you're opening a brewery and you're not the brewmaster, like you're not making the beer yourself, you need to make sure that your brewmaster has a willing ear. 
that you are an advocate for them. That's the lifeblood of your brewery, especially in, in small communities or in very competitive communities, because your brewery is is make or break off of the reputation and the capability of that brewmaster and their ability to produce consistent beer on a regular basis. So we're consistently still making great beer. We are distributing it through our distributors and ultimately shit is just falling apart in the tasting room, right? So that's that's a big issue that we're dealing with. What was the numbers like? Was it like, were we getting consistently down? Was the the money guy pissed no, off I mean, every month and like fighting with him or? No, I mean, things were good. Him and I have always had a good relationship. We'd have our rough patches or our discussions or our disagreements. You would see where even the soccer stadium opened, like we're doing really good and we're we're killing it or or whatever. It, it would always boil down to, like I said, that in-house experience where I've got a lot of people in my motorcycle group that would come up there and just support just because it's me and, and they want to buy my beer weekly. And they would all come up there and bitch about the same thing. It's like, man, this, your bartender's fucking or blah blah blah, you know. It, it was it was a consistent thing, and there's nothing I could do. Beer's fantastic, but yeah. I had fucking so and so served me two out of five. And people and people that if they didn't have that personal relationship with him, that you know, wouldn't come back. So how did it like finally turn into a situation where the conversation turned to closing the door? Because usually that's not going to be hey, let's just be done tomorrow. Like there's going to be some fights and struggles in there. Yes and no. So. I, I've had three surgeries over the past year, and I've kind of been trying to ease off a little bit. Um, they're all service-connected surgeries, and I've been trying to take a step back and be like, I can be the brewmaster. I can still write the recipes. I can still do blah, blah, blah. I can do this. I can do that. I've been training people up to do what I can do. I've ran the canning line and brewed at the same time by myself, which is bonkers. I've hired people over the years who have shown, like, this is what they want to do. I've hired young people, 21, 22 years old, just learning how to work and learning how to drink at the same time. And then you combine the two and it, it, it sucks for him. And I've had to fire him and let him go. It was called out on Facebook that, you know, I did have some exploding cans at one point and it, it, it hurt. It hurt the brand, but it also boiled back down to when I swabbed that canning line, it wasn't being cleaned. Things weren't where they needed to be. I mean, it, it may have been being cleaned, but it wasn't being cleaned to where it needed to be. And would you say that that you had know, something it, to do with, kind of like almost being understaffed like uh, or under-resourced ultimately? I would definitely say that, you know, because, I mean, at the same time, like I'm I'm being told we can only pay these people X amount, you know. So when I have X amount of money, I can only afford X amount of experience. Mm-hmm. So I'm having to hire these new guys and teach these young new guys how to do stuff and hope and count and rely on them to do it. A lot of times the big breweries, stuff like that, they shit on the home brewers, but even as a home brewer, you understand that everything that happens in between the brews is as important as what happens in the brew. And that's, you know, your your clean equipment, your sterile conditions, you know, making sure that your everything is ready in place, everything else. That can be the downfall of a brewery is, you know, when you're not brewing, making sure that that same attentiveness to, you know, the exact balance of hops and grain and everything is paid to the exact, you know, amount of cleaning and the storage and the canning and everything else that needs to be there. You can make award-winning beer, but if it goes down to packaging time, <laughs> if something's not done right, I mean, any time, it fucks it, yeah. you know? And I can't push all the blame on people I've hired and stuff like that, you know? Like, at the same time, I should have provided more oversight. I should have been more strict on things. I should have 
checked more things more often, you know, but, and I put a lot of trust in things. So I guess what it boils down to is be careful what you trust. But it goes back to one bad bacteria can ruin everything, you know, and you can apply that to, you know, a, an actual bacteria in the canning line or just a shit attitude behind the bar, you know, so you can have a very great product, but you introduce a bad bacteria into that process and it just fucks everything that you've done up to that point. Or you don't give a long enough crash time for a beer and yeah. get fruit in with sugar and let's get that in. <laughs> when sales starts to that. tell production how to do their job, that, that's always a problem. Was it a fight or did uh, everyone agree, hey, the last day should be whatever it was, July, whatever, right? <laughs> so, so that's a blind side. It was. Yeah. So I had started a new job part time a week prior to knowing that we were going to shut down. Hmm. At the time, I didn't know we were shut down. I was just like, cool, I'm passing off and stuff. It's actually That's- more beneficial for the uh, the brewery. Instead of being on salary, it was going to yeah. be on production, yeah. which was more beneficial. Yeah, it was it was cutting out quite a bit of money. And I was like, cool, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a step back. You know, I need a, an easier job just because the surgeries I've had and everything, the lifestyle I've got. You know, I just need something easier. You know, my family's suffering. I'm suffering. So we'll step back. And um, a week later, I got a phone call. Saying, hey, we're, we're shutting down at the end of the month, like nine days left or some shit. And I was like, wow. Oh. Yeah. They, they, and they're like, hey, we're going to put on social media. Like, don't, like, holy shit. Like, we need to tell the staff we need to talk about this first. And they're like, cool. Well, tomorrow morning we're going to put it out there. I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Now the time. And that was the end of the conversation. Yeah. And the next morning I put it out there. And it was an, an hour later. I personally, me, Robo, I'm getting destroyed on Reddit. Reddit. Yeah. I'm getting destroyed on. Facebook, I'm getting destroyed on. Instagram, I'm getting destroyed on everything because I was the forward facing of the brand. Fractal was two of three of the breweries to shut down during that month. There was other breweries in the Huntsville area. But the reason is, and it's not because of a crash in the market or anything else to that. It's just that August is the month that alcohol licenses come up for renewal. Insurance. So, and you have to pay out for the year and... Alabama is the, what is it, the highest in the nation as far as uh, alcohol insurance and liability insurance. So it's one of those things of like, okay, if you decide to go into August, you're committing to another year of operation. And so that's that's kind of, yeah. And they did tell me that. That's kind of one of the things. It's like, okay, if we decide pass. Because I already planned out Cracktoberfest in September for the brewery. Like, yeah, the mayor's in, the... The rush beer, like all of a sudden, like I look forward to this season. I, I hate to say it, but it's the the, the good beer season because that's when everybody's like, we got to put German beers in. Like, yes, but those are the good beers. So they gave you nine days. The market starts to eviscerate you, meaning that they personally were holding you accountable for having to close and like blaming you for what was going on. Or what do you mean by that? Uh, it, it was the uh, local, I say the local craft beer scene, but there's... We got different levels of craft beer scene here, and it's fucking stupid. We have some here that, that are Cicerones that can Cicero kiss my ass. But they're top tier and all this shit, and blah, blah, blah. They've been around forever, and they fucking managers here, or I port beer here, or I work at this brewery, or blah, 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 you know? And they think they know shit. And it's like, no, no, and no. They think because they have they... done your job, plus brewed, plus owned, Plus this and this and this. Like I've, They think because they've eaten a sausage that they have the right to an opinion 
on how the sausage is made. I don't know why the eating the sausage metaphor has me a little bit uncomfortable. I don't know what to say next, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just three. It's just three dudes talking about eating the sausage. I don't know. What's, I don't know what's awkward about that. You know, <laughs> uh, every brewery decides differently how they're going to close. How How did you do it? No, did you have a party? Just, did you just fucking walk out? Like, what What was the deal? Oh shit, man. So it's funny. It was what three or four days later. Yeah. After it was announced, three days later, after it was announced, like, I was like, I don't even know how to feel about this. My wife was like, man, you've worked your ass off. Like, we've had children during this. Like, you've sacrificed this, this, and this. Like, you, what the fuck? You know, I'm like, I know, you know, and uh, a lot of my friends, well over a hundred of them, were like, we need to go up and do a farewell. And I was like, I don't, I just, I don't think it's right. I, I, I'm not comfortable yet. So we went over straight to Dale, went over straight to Dale, and they treated me right. As soon as I walked in, they're like, Robo, come here. You know, and they all took care of me, bought me beers. They all took care of me and my group, you know. And after a few beers, I was like, I need to go by there, buy Fractal, because I needed to make sure a check was written, and I needed to talk to my bar staff at least, you know. To be like, hey, I'm sorry. You know, you guys have a short notice. I'm really sorry. Thank you for being here. During the whole time also, I have to remember that the – they, number one, thought that he had a lot more say in this than he did. And number two, they thought that because he was always the person that was the one that had to be the vocal partner in the deal. So the person that made the decision was the, was the majority financial stakeholder, but was by no means the majority actual boots on the ground managing partner. Yeah, he didn't handle operations. So what ended up happening? I, I was, did you guys I, just close three days later? You said you went to the brewery and then what? So I went to the brewery and then walked in, tried to talk to my bar staff. And some of them had been drinking and sort of trying to throw fists at me. And You had, a, you had a, it, one of your yeah. employees try to fight you? Yes, it was. I actually I actually had to step in and break up the fight. Yeah, it was, uh, it was crazy. Like I just said, I was like, whoa, what are you doing? And it was it was absolutely nuts. And I was like, dude, what the fuck? Like, I'll buy all your beers right now. Like. I just found out, too, dickhead. <laughs> because once again, and and granted, these were the same bartenders that but it, it, you know rewind were the rewind. problem. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. There were there was two bartenders I can say to this day that weren't a fucking problem, and that is Ben and I hate to say it because I'll get shit for it, but my sister. They actually cared about the business, cared about me, cared about everything growing, and the rest of them just said, "Don't care." Yeah, but that's the thing though is that. He got all the blame. And so it was one of those things of like, yeah, it was like 75% of like, okay, it's that time in the year where we have to acknowledge if we're going to commit to another year or so. But then also the brewery was on an upswing. Taproom was making money. So it's one of those things of like, well, shit, we're going to, we're going to cut while we're up. But you have to look at it from the standpoint of like, you know, the person that made the decision is not the person that interacted with staff all the time. And so they had no choice but to exert their frustrations out on him because he was the person they dealt with all the time. That's it. And that's not just that. But even when the customers would come up there and like, yo, is Robo here? I mean, the bartenders in my home, they asked who you were around. Blah, but, blah. But, but that, they wanted to talk to me or there were homebrewers like, hey, do you have some yeast I can get? Or, hey, this beer is good. You know, when I stuck around late, I mean, that's what it turned into is like, I'd go, I'd talk to them or something like that. And they'd be like, hey, so-and-so was rude or blah, blah, blah. And they would bring their complaints to me personally sometimes. And I would express but, it to the ownership. And they'd be like, oh, what's well, just one? I'm like, it's not. <laughs> but that, but that's the other thing, too, is, you know, is if you're going into this sort of business and, and it's like this with any business, though, so, hey, it's transparency and operations. 
you know, making sure that, yeah, you know, number one, I mean, it's not as important with the public, but especially within your staff is making sure that you're very clear and very transparent about who's making what calls. Because in this situation, Brad was as blindsided as the bar staff was on this. You know, I mean, well, that, never notice. Yeah. <laughs> I found out he texted me the same time I was reading the Facebook post <laughs> because he had just found out a few seconds earlier. And so, like, that's the major thing is like, if you're doing this business, I mean, it's not just with breweries, but it's with any business. It's like, you have to make sure that you're being transparent, not just with your employees, but with the outward facing public and letting them know, like, this isn't something that you just wake up in the morning. If you ever watch The Office and there's the episode where Robert California got drunk the one night and just decided, decided to close a branch. I, I refer back to that a lot in a lot of the business discussions. I, I, I do some business consulting, but this is not something. Brewery. This is not something that you just decide. Oh, like you wake up one morning and say, you know, hey, I'm going to do this. It's a long thought out process. But but you as a business owner and you as a you know, if you're the brewmaster or whatever, owe it to your staff and owe it to your employees to make sure that they at least know what's coming, and so they're not blindsided by it. That's one of the big lessons learned out of this was making sure that everybody knows what's going on. So, so the, a couple of things, Robo. First of all, we aren't even close to getting done with what I want to ask. So I would love to do worst case, uh, a YouTube follow-up, uh, best case, maybe like a bonus episode. But there's a couple of things I want to tell you. One is that I have always said, I don't know if I said this on air, but I am going to stop doing this podcast the second that I stop learning new things. And you were the first person who almost got in a fight with one of your employees because of closing. And so I'm announcing right now that I'm good for at least another bad. two seasons. It I'm going to continue this podcast. Also, I really want to just kind of dig into you know the emotions behind it. Obviously, when you had the offer to sell during COVID, there was a value to your shares and you had to have thought about what that is and you had to have known what you lost. And so, I mean, that's an important piece of the puzzle. So I want to thank you absolutely and profusely for sharing what you've shared so far. And off air, you confirmed that you would do an extended follow-up on this one. So I'm happy to do that. Ben, if you want to join us, I think that'd be great. I'm going to wrap up for oh, here. We have a fuck ton more to go over. Yeah. Okay, Trust that, me, I'll be your longest one so far. All right. No, I'll do a second <laughs> episode. I love that. So, all right. I'm going to let you guys get, you're getting kicked out of a place we want to talk about anyway. So let's go home. We'll wrap it up and we'll follow up another day. <laughs> all right, man. We'll see you, bro. All right. Thanks, dude. Thanks a fuckload for sticking around, guys. What my guests and I do here wouldn't be possible without your curiosity. And balancing the toxic positivity in the crapper industry with a hefty dose of reality could not be more important. If you're thinking about starting a brewery, I honestly wish you the best of luck. If you've already got one and you're trying to decide if you should keep it, I wish you the best of love. Maybe you shuttered or sold your beer business and you're well into the next positive and hopeful stage of your life. In that case, I'll buy you a beer or seven. I'm always on the hunt for great stories of other breweries that have felt the sting of struggle. I'm always open to answering questions and helping any way that I possibly can. So feel free to reach out. Email is easiest at freeplaykelly. Oh, and if you're inclined to support the show, there are a few ways you can go about that. None better than sharing your favorite episode with your favorite friend, followed very closely by buying a copy of my 2020 book, How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. And last but never least, you can support the businesses that have supported the show. 
I truly hope this show has made you think, made you feel, and made you better at your career. And of course, I hope it's taught you a little something about how not to start a damn brewery. Free play. Media. Media.